M S W Media. Hey, this is Joel Stein. Whenever I want booze knowledge, I listen to what we're drinking with Dan Dunn. That's not what it's called. What's it called? We're drinking stuff. Drinking with Dan. Dan's drinks. I have no idea. Well, pour yourself a glass, sit for a spill. It's time to have some fun. Let's do a little thinking, some picking and a drinking. But this is what we're drinking with Dan Dunn. Happy holidays to you, my friend. Well, thank you. I'm Dan Dunn. What we're drinking is uh, bubbly. This episode is all about the bubbly. That's right, sparkling wine. After all, tis the season. Weirdly enough, it was never anyone's intention to foster fizz in fermented grape juice. Those nose-tickling bubbles happen quite by accident. Carbonation has been showing up in booze since the first cavemen made a crude version of Pruno back in the Neolithic period. Primitive societies blame the mysterious appearance of bubbles in their wine on phases of the moon and evil spirits. In the Middle Ages, uh, the inexplicably effervescent elixir spooked folks so much that they took to calling it the devil's wine. Blah. The actual cause of still wine's carbonation is far more pedestrian. About 350 years ago, the Champagne region of France began exporting loads of wine to England. And during production, it often got so cold in Champagne that the wine's fermentation would stop prematurely. Um, This would leave residual sugars and dormant yeast in the barrels. And after the wine was bottled up tightly and shipped to warmer climes, the increase in temperature induced a secondary fermentation in the bottle, uh, producing carbon dioxide. Since the gas had no place to go, it went into solution, creating the iconic bubbly we know today. So while stories about a French Benedictine monk named Pierre Dom Perignon, you've heard of Dom Perignon, he was uh, the first to see the tendency of wines from Champagne to sparkle as a desirable trait. The, this story has been widely popular, but really the credit rightfully belongs to the 17th century London hipsters who were the first to embrace the sweet wines that had become fizzy during the long journey across the English Channel. Eventually, of course, secondary fermentation was induced intentionally and became known as the Champagne method or Methode Champenoise. Champenoise. It's my French. Today, the most celebrated sparkling wines still come from the historic province in France where Bubbly was born, and they're made primarily with three grape varietals, Pinot Noir, Pinot Meunier, and Chardonnay. The juice from the Champagne houses of Crewe, Cristal, Perrier-Jouet, and of course, Dom Perignon, Moet Hennessy, are staples on the most exclusive wine list the world over. But in recent years, as wine's consumer base has increased, so too has the demand for sparkling stuff produced outside of Champagne. 
uh, over the past decade, the price of champagne has gone up. Um, producers there have decided to position their wines as ultra luxury. A lot of restaurants can't afford to pour champagne by the glass anymore, so they're looking to sparkling wines from places like the U.S., Australia, Italy, Tasmania. Yes, Tasmania. Uh, many of the great champagne houses have also purchased vineyards in Northern California in recent years as a sign that uh, New World sparkling wines are a force to be reckoned with. Uh, look, you know, face it, the coastal areas of California have the ultimate climate and soil conditions to produce great sparkling wine, and they do. There are just things in California they can't do in France, such ripen the grapes to perfection year in and year out, and they can do it more cost-effectively. Um, there are many different styles of sparkling wine to choose from around the world. For example, Cremant is mostly produced in France and is notab notably less bubbly than Champagne, resulting in a creamier mouthfeel. Then you've got Cava, which is the name given to bubbly produced in Spain, also made using the Champagne method, uh, but with an array of varietals uh, that you probably never heard of. Maccabeo, Paranada, is, uh, Chardonnay's in there too. And then Prosecco from Italy is usually drier than most bubblies, and, and that's uh, produced via the Charmat method, in which the wine undergoes a secondary fermentation in bulk tanks and then is bottled under pressure. Of course, among its many celebrated qualities uh, is fine champagne's ability to pair with a wide variety of food. Uh, for many years, non-champagne-based producers had a terrible time getting sommeliers at high-end restaurants to embrace them as a pairing option. But that hurdle appears to have finally been cleared. I've been seeing a lot of sparkling wines from California and other places uh, at the really nice restaurants that I get to go to like once a year. Um, you know, I've heard people say they don't like a certain type of sparkling wine because it's too sweet or too fruity, but I feel that the conversation should not be about generalizing a wine or region as being fruity, lean, or plush, but knowing and trusting what the individual producers are creating, and that just takes time. That just takes buying bottles and and uh, and and getting used to the brands that you like. I'm also a firm believer that there is a time and a dish for every well-made wine, whether modern, traditional, or avant-garde. Same goes for sparkling wines. Um, but partaking of sparkling wine produced outside France, that region, Champagne, uh, it's not without its risks. You'd be hard-pressed to find a truly awful Champagne, but there are plenty of terrible sparkling wines out there. So buyer beware. It's important to do a bit of research. Yes, research. Do your homework, people, for buying non-champagne sparkling wine. Look for reputable producers that employ the traditional champagne method in regions that are suited for growing grapes that have that balance of acidity and extract richness necessary to produce quality sparkling wine. So remember, if the uh, apocryphal story of Dom Perignon is to be believed, when he first tasted the devil's wine in his little corner of the world, the mad monk is said to exclaim, Come quickly, I am drinking the stars. And here we are, four centuries later, the stars are shining all over the world. What do you think of that? What do you think of that? What do you think, Tiffany Thiessen? Hey, this is Tiffany Thiessen, and you're listening to What We're Drinking with Dan Dunn. I got five facts I want to tell you about sparkling wine. Stuff you should know. First off, all champagne is sparkling wine, but not all sparkling wine is champagne. I think we've covered that, but it's good to know. That's probably the first rule you need to know. 
Uh, a 750 milliliter bottle of sparkling wine contains roughly 49 million bubbles. And the pressure all those tiny gas balls produce causes corks to pop at an average velocity of 40 miles an hour. Miles an hour, that's crazy. That's coming out way hot. Um, When you're tasting wine, if you're in doubt about what you're tasting, uh, use any of these five simple go-to modifiers to describe what you're drinking. Complex, balanced, layered, intense, well-rounded. Works every time. Another fact, Marilyn Monroe once took a champagne bath, reportedly took 350 bottles of it to fill the tub. And finally, the the little uh, indentation found at the bottom of many wine bottles, that little indentation, that thing's called a punt. Uh, it, it was the, Back in the day, it was there so the bottles would fit into each other when they were shipping. Modern glass technologies rendered the punt functionally useless, but it endures uh, because wine consumers, unlike football fans, equate punts with quality. Oh, big news, too, in the world of bubbly. Uh, Moet and Chandon has been the official champagne of the Golden Globes for over a quarter century. And they just announced the official cocktail of this year's ceremony. Exciting stuff. Come on. You know you're excited out there. You want to hear it? Do you want to hear the... The official cocktail of the Golden Globes? It's the Moet Golden Hour, created by acclaimed fashion designer Laquan Smith. I don't have any of Laquan Smith's fashion, but he's acclaimed. Uh, He created this drink. It contains uh, an ounce and a half of Moet Imperial Brut, an eighth of an ounce of Belvedere pink grapefruit vodka, 1.1, what is up with these weird proportions? 1.1 ounces of fresh pineapple juice and 0.35 ounces of simple syrup. That's not complicated at all. Uh, you're going you're gonna to garnish it with pineapple sprinkled with smoked salt. It's in a coupe glass. You're going to combine and shake the vodka, pineapple juice, and simple syrup. You pour it into the coop, you top it with the brute, you garnish with the pineapple chunk, and you are like a star at the Golden Globes. You're a star. By the way, uh, the folks at Moet and Chandon wanted me to let you know that for the first time ever, you can pre-purchase this Moet and Chandon champagne box to craft the Moet Golden Hour cocktail at home. It's 100 bucks. You can get it on giftagram.com. Giftagram. Giftagram. That's it. It's available uh, from December 16th through the Golden Globe Ceremony. And you're going to get a 750 milliliter bottle of Moet Imperial Brut, two minis, two flutes, blah, 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 golden skewers. It's just, you'll be a regular George Clooney. That's it. You'll be a regular George Clooney. More on the bubbly front, I, uh, guessing, I'm guessing on the Adam Carolla show this week. I believe the episode's going to be live on December 18th. So uh, this show's going up on the 17th. So if you, um, depending on when you're listening to it, uh, you can check me out on the Adam Carolla show. I'm going to be talking about bubbly. I'm bringing in four delicious bottles of bubbly to uh, share with Adam and the crew. And uh, it should be fun. Always is a lot of fun when I go in there. I, I, I enjoy it tremendously um what else we got this is you can tell it's the holidays man i'm, I'm getting ready for the end of the year <laughs> mm. 
That's right. I got to tell you about our friends at Savage and Cook. Savage and Cook. Uh, the burning chair bourbon from Savage and Cook is uh, great. I love it. And uh, in 1998, when he was just 25, uh, wine phenom Dave Finney founded Orrin Swift Cellars and promptly turned it into a behemoth. A behemoth on the strength of powerful Zinfandel-driven wines such as The Prisoner. You've heard of The Prisoner. Everybody knows The Prisoner. It's an amazing, iconic wine. Well, now today, Dave Finney's 46 years old, and he's wowing the whiskey world with The Burning Chair, which is $59 a bottle. This is a bourbon produced at his newly built Savage and Cook Distillery on Mare Island in Viejo, California. Uh, puts this stuff in New American Oak for four years, and then he finishes it in Cabernet-based uh, barrels that had had Cabernet in there from his wine projects. Um, and then he uh, gets a little water in there, pristine water from the Alexander Valley. Uh, goes into this really cool-looking, non-traditional black bottle. And it is a lively spirit, boasting an array of pleasantries, including vanilla bean, maple, and baked apple flavor. Uh, the initial sweetness gives way to the bite of citrus zest and barrel char, creating great balance and complexity. From one of the industry's true iconoclasts, this is boho booze at its best. So now that the holidays, I mentioned the holidays are here, um, I want to tell you about a holiday gift that uh, will be sure to warm your heart and line my pockets. It's uh, my book, American Wino, A Tale of Reds, Whites and One Man's Blues. That's right. It's available on Amazon, wherever you buy books. Probably Amazon. It's the way to go. American Wino. And to entice you, to entice you uh, to check it out, I'm going I'm to give you a little snippet from American Wino right now. Um, the, the Christmas is always a weird time of year for me because... I, uh, I've got great memories, but I got some not so great memories. And one of those is, um, I had a dog named Piglet and Piglet was an American bulldog and she was just about the best dog. In fact, go to, uh, at the imbiber, my Instagram, I'm going to post a little, uh, a little video of Piglet, um, for you guys to check it out. But, uh, Piglet got sick right around Christmas, uh, a long time ago, but, um, no. Not that long ago. I guess it was 2011 or 12, maybe. Right around there. 12, I think. Um, and I I wrote about her in, in American Wino, and I thought I'd share that little story with you to, well, you know, tap in the, tug on the heartstrings a little bit during uh, during the holidays. Um, I'll try not to cry. Okay. You never know when you're going to get the look. You might know it's coming. You might have been expecting it a long time. But the look always takes you by surprise. It's impossible to describe. It's like trying to explain what shit smells like. Jude was my living girlfriend before Elizabeth, and I knew our little experiment in cohabitation wasn't going to work before she showed up with a moving truck full of framed French movie posters, Ikea furniture, and daddy issues. Still, you press on, because if you don't, what are you doing on the planet? You know it's doomed, and you do it anyway, just to see if on the off chance it's not doomed. Because, hey, it has to not be doomed sometime, right? Spoiler alert, wrong. And then you get the look, and you realize you were wrong. I mean right. You know what I mean. For Jude, it came one morning as she was getting ready to go to work. I was telling her that I was 
having lunch with Scott. Should be fun, I said. He just got divorced and needs a little crazy time. I might be back late tonight. Try not to get to any new STDs. <laughs> I'm super funny like that, see? Which is when I got the look. Immediately, I remembered. Jude and I were supposed to have lunch to celebrate. It was the two-month anniversary of us moving in together. And that was it. Once you get the look, there's no getting away from it. She didn't say anything right then. She saved her words for that night, just before she slammed the door behind her for the last time. She handed me Piglet's leash and said, Maybe if you try caring about something other than yourself for once, you'll finally grow up. Whenever someone asks where I got Piglet, I say, In the divorce. Never mind that this wasn't a real divorce, the kind that cost people half their possessions and two-thirds of their dignity. It was just another banal breakup of yet another non-legally binding romantic entanglement. But ever since turning 40, I've taken to saying things like, I got it in the divorce. I've also started saying, ever since turning 40. It's my way of trying to seem more adult. The evidence suggests it isn't working, but it beats not dyeing my hair. I should clarify at this point that Piglet was a three-year-old American bulldog Jude rescued about a month before we moved in together. She weighed approximately 70 pounds, had a white and brindle coat, and big floppy ears. Piglet was good-looking, as American bulldogs go, with just enough jut in her jaw to look tough, but not grumpy. And she wasn't too jowly. Still, when she stuck her head out the car window on the highway, her tongue and cheeks flapped like wet slices of bologna hung from a clothesline in a hurricane. She had eyes like a Drew Barrymore rom-com, sweet, full of optimism, and at the end of the day, pretty stupid. A charitable person would have called her temperament easygoing. Then they would have gone over and poked her to make sure she wasn't in a coma. This is not to say she didn't have a zest for life. It was just that she exhibited no interest in traditional dog-like activities, such as fetching things, running around in parks, and being awake. It is no exaggeration to say that Piglet spent 98% of her life supine, slobbering, and snoring on a tan leather chair by the television in my living room. If she had smelled of Pall Malls and mothballs, I'd have sworn she was my grandmother. To be fair, Piglet wasn't completely sedentary. Early on, I taught her a trick that killed her every time she managed to drag herself up off the chair and do it. Using a treat as a reward, I'd point my finger at her like a gun. When I popped my thumb and said, pow, she'd roll over and play dead. Trouble was, she loved treats so much that eventually she just started rolling over and playing dead at random, like when we were out for walks. And God forbid I didn't have a treat on me because until that reward came, she'd keep flopping over like she was taking multiple gunshot blasts to the chest, each time looking up to make sure I'd seen, confirming in her mind that I really was the stingy asshole she'd figured me for. Meanwhile, strangers were eyeing me like I was the long-lost member of Michael Vick's posse. The fact that Piglet required so little attention probably explains why she stuck and Jew didn't. I didn't have a lot of attention to spare. I was working my ass off day and night trying to become some semblance of a success. I was doing this because I knew that successful people usually make a lot of money. I grew up believing money meant freedom. I was wrong about that, of course. I now know that once you make some money, somehow you feel the need to keep working at it. Till the day you realize you're old and worn and broken down and you stop and look around and think, holy fuck, I've wasted my whole life working. I could have been living. Piglet ate a bowl of dry food twice a day. We'd go on three short walks tops. 
we never went very far because Pig had a bum right front leg. I never found out what had happened to her. We rescued her when she was three, but her tranquil temperament suggested the injury was the result of an accident rather than abuse. Who knows? Maybe she had taken a bullet early on in life, which would explain how she sold the shotgun trick so effectively. Piglet threw up the day after Christmas 2011. I figured she ate something she shouldn't have. She puked the rest of the afternoon. I figured she'd be fine once she got it all out. But as night came, it became clear something else was wrong. She wouldn't eat, not even one of her beloved treats. A white crust had formed around her mouth. She had a glazed look in her eyes. Piglet was a dog that turned laziness into art form, but this was different. She was worn out, worn down, just worn all to hell. In the middle of the night, I heard a noise. I turned on the light to find Pig taking a long, slow whiz right next to my bed. I was half asleep and on instinct screamed at her and slapped her on the rump. She looked up at me mournfully, mid-whiz, as if to communicate that she knew, and there was nothing she could do about it. She was fully cognizant that she was doing the most awful thing a dog could do. I immediately felt like the front-runner in the world's biggest dick games. But that was nothing next to the way I felt two weeks later. It means she's going to die, the vet told me flatly after the biopsy results revealed Piglet had a form of cancer called mast cell disease. The fact that she'd lasted two weeks was apparently a miracle in itself. A few days after she'd started vomiting, her condition had deteriorated to the point where she couldn't walk down the stairs to go outside. They ran a bunch of tests on her at the animal hospital and discovered an ulcer inside her stomach. They didn't know whether or not it was cancerous, but they said her only chance at survival was to operate immediately. So they cut my dog wide open, and the surgeon looked inside, and she saw a reason to hope. It would be a highly risky and expensive surgery, and she gave Pig about a 40% chance of surviving. I told her to do whatever it took. A few hours later, they called to let me know she'd come through the procedure. The next 48 hours were going to be touch and go. Her vitals could fail at any moment. Sure enough, she survived that too, and the following 48 hours as well. As, that I, as I had always known, Piglet was one tough bitch. I went to see her every day, and even though half her body was shaved bald and she had large staples across her torso and feeding tubes sticking out of her nose and a large colostomy bag hanging from her side, she looked like herself again. She looked happy. She was alive. The biopsy report came back the day I took her home from the hospital. She was still positive for cancer. Like, super crazy cancer party positive. Best case scenario, she'd live a few months. A few months? A few shit months after all this pain and worry and money and heartache? Fuck yes, a few months. That operation was the best $17,000 I ever spent. This next sentence is going to make me sound like a terrible, narcissistic shit stain of a person, but I'm going to say it anyway. I started noticing Piglet. I started appreciating every little nuance of her day, from the first thing in the morning when I'd wake Frantic to check on her, make sure she was okay, see if maybe she'd eat something. During the days, I saw, for the first time, the thousand individuated ways she'd lounge and loll on the tan leather chair by the television. In the evenings, we'd go up to the roof deck of my house, and she'd sit there by the edge watching cars roll by below, hot moms pushing their babies, homeless guys staggering to the liquor store, boats floating in and out of the marina, bugs swirling through the trees. 
I became convinced she wasn't just watching. She was taking it all in, that she instinctively understood she'd soon be leaving it all behind. A weekend, I wondered how long this fascination slash focus would last. After all, the vet had said a few months. And a few means at least three, and three months is a long time to stay fascinated with something. My fascination only lasted three weeks, because that's how long Piglet lasted. On a Friday afternoon, just before sundown, three weeks to the day from her surgery, Piglet gave me the look. I'd never seen something so clearly in my life. The look said several things at once. It said, I'm ready to go, and it said, I love you. It also said, please don't cry, and it was me that farted all those times. At the vet's that night, as I lay on the floor next to Piglet, the doc explained about the two injections they'd be giving her. The first would slow down her vitals and, quote, mitigate any tendency towards spasm and other involuntary movement. Translation, it would keep the dog from freaking out and crapping all over the floor. I was tempted to ask her to give me one of those, too. I'm not going to say I needed it more than Piglet, but goddamn, I could have used something. The next injection, the pink shot, would finish the job. That's the one that stops your heart. The plunger drops... The curtain lowers. Good night and good luck. I've lost too many people I love to say that lying there on the floor with my arms wrapped around that dog as she died was the saddest moment of my life. But I don't believe I've ever cried as hard as I did that night. And this next part is going to sound like I made up a bullshit Hollywood ending to my dead dog story, but I was there and this is what happened. When the pink shot went in, during those final agonizing seconds before it did its job. Piglet lifted her head and looked at me in my tear-streaked face and gave me a different look. This one just said, thank you. Then she licked my face, a big, sloppy, baloney-tongued lick, and she closed her eyes and stopped breathing. I got rid of Piglet's bowls and collar and the toys she never played with, but I kept the leash, the one Jude claimed would lead me to maturity. There's one thing I can't stand, it's when someone who hates me is right. Then I used the leash to walk Buna, the rambunctious pit bull Labrador mix I adopted a few months later. Only this time I started paying attention from the beginning. Buna isn't functionally comatose, which makes a difference, but still, my entire attitude toward her is elevated, and I don't think I would have gotten there if it weren't for Pig, and thus by extension Jude. The big difference between them, of course, is that while the lady is long gone, Piglet will always be my number one bitch. I'm going to leave you with that, guys, gals, and whoever, whatever, however. That's from American Wino. Uh, I'm going to. I think I'm going to do this again next week too. But uh, I hope you have a uh, a lovely holiday, uh, Christmas, Hanukkah, whatever you're celebrating. And uh, oh, what more can I say? Happy holidays, everyone! Save.
say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target, are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill. Ready for a career in behavioral health? Earn your online degree at Herzing University. Choose from health and human services, psychology, or social work programs. Gain the skills to work, coordinate, and manage nonprofits. Secure a bachelor's in psychology to study mental health or advance your social work career through our online Masters of Social Work. Let us help you become a social change agent. Your future starts now at Herzing University. Text HEALTH to 85109. That's HEALTH to 85109. Or visit herzing.edu.